It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. From Amari, Christian, Skyler, Caitlin, Dolade, Jordan, Antonio, Eddie, and the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a good one in store today. Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with uh, critically acclaimed author and Vietnam veteran about uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, um, as, uh, as he does in his new book, uh, Searching for Gurney. Jack Estes will be with us. And before that, we're going to talk about navigating the COVID academic slide. If you don't know what that is, you'll be able to find out during the second hour with Brian Galvin, Chief Academic Officer at Varsity Tutors. But uh, first, I'd like to uh, welcome back to the show an author who was uh, just here not too long ago. Um, I don't know how fast he writes, but (laughs) he... uh, was here to talk about his book, Crimes and Passions. Uh, he is uh, the, the author of the Jordan Sandor espionage thrillers and uh, many more. Um, but uh, he's, he's got a new book, and it's called Fool's Errand. And we're going to be talking with uh, author Jeffrey Stevens, who joins me now by phone. Jeffrey, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Good morning, everybody. Um. Jeffrey, in uh, in Fool's Errand, um, this is a story about uh, someone discovering something about their their father that they didn't already know. I think that's that's basically correct. And I was laughing when you said you don't know how fast I write books. The, the release of these two books kind of bumped into each other. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> thought... me, I don't write, I don't write a book in three months. But um, yeah, Crimes <laughs> and Passion got re-released, and it was supposed to be re-released uh, in the early spring. And, of course, then we had, as you know, we had the, um, the, uh, uh, the pandemic, of course, and that got in the way of everything. 
And so now Fool's Errand is coming out as when it's supposed to. But in any case, yes, Fool's Errand is my most personal novel. I'm really happy that it's been published. And it is the story of a young man who's very much a straight shooter. And I'm not giving anything away because this happens right in the beginning of the story where he discovers a letter that was written to him by his father who had died six years before. And the letter was among some papers that his mother had kept hidden from him because his father was sort of a ne'er-do-well, sort of a demon running character, if you will. And now the son gets this letter, and so his father's speaking to him from the hereafter, and he has to decide whether or not to chase one of his father's crazy dreams or not. And, of course, because it's a book, you know that he does. <laughs> so, so, and that's the fun. And so it's sort of like it's a treasure hunt as this young man also discovers who he is, who his father was. He sort of finds himself, he finds romance, and certainly finds adventure. And so that's the basis of the story. So it's, uh, in a way, uh, this character is inheriting the family business. Yeah, sort of. It's, it's one of those things. It's one of those things. If you remember in The Godfather, how Michael Corleone in the original movie and the, and the book never wanted to have any part in that business, and of course he wound up running the family. This is a little bit different than that. This is just a guy who is a straight shooter in the beginning and remains a straight shooter at the end. And what he does, he does because he loved his father, and he felt that if his father went to the trouble of writing this letter to him and leaving it behind, and now he finds it all these years later, he's got to do something. And so he runs afoul of some bad people as along the way, and so there's adventure, there's excitement, there's humor, and there is this, this mystery hunt with some, uh, with some twists at the end. Now, Jeffrey, you um, kind of opened the door when you said this was one of your, your most personal stories. In, in what way is this... Uh, is this story personal to you? Well, that's a great question. In in several ways. First of all, my dad died young, so uh, mine he was too. Only 50 by the when, way, when he passed away, yeah, it's it's rough. And and what I wanted to explore when I say personal is this, and I hope that that your listeners can relate to this. You know, parents have such an amazing. I know this sounds like a silly thing to say, but they have such an amazing influence on how we develop, mothers and daughters. Uh, mothers and sons, fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, what have you. And it, it's, it's interesting because the death of a parent is not the end of that influence. And that's sort of what I was looking at. And I use a quote uh, at the very beginning of the book by the famous editor, Maxwell Perkins. He was the editor for, uh, for Jones, for uh, Ernest Hemingway, for F. Scott Fitzgerald. And the quote was that every good deed a man does is to please his father. And there are times, even all these years later after my dad is gone, when something happens, and I think, gosh, I wish my father could have seen that. And I think people relate to that because they feel that way about their parents. Bad parents are good parents. It doesn't matter. There's still a huge influence. And so this, this book was intended to take that to something of an extreme in the sense that Here's this guy, his nickname is Blackie, and he's talking to his son from the, from the grave six years later, which is about as remote as it's going to get. I mean, could you imagine getting something from your dad that he wrote to you six years before when he died, and you say, like, wow, like, this is the last time he's ever going to speak to me, and I never expected to get this, and it turns out to set him on a course which is dangerous and uh, questionable legally and so on and so on. 
And so when I say personal, that's what I mean. I think it's, it's really important. Uh, I'm very, I don't know how to say this, but I, I think parenting is such a huge responsibility. And sometimes people just take it for granted, you know, oh, well, we have children and we do the best we can. But the impact that we have as parents, that one thing you say can have such a lasting effect on how a young man or woman lives their life, it can't be underestimated. And so, in a way, that's what I was looking at in this novel. If you don't mind my asking, how old was your dad when he passed away? He was 50, and I was 22. And I was not yet out of school, and he never got to see me graduate, and so that was kind of sad, and he died suddenly of a heart attack. But he had had previous heart attacks. He had a bad family history, and he just didn't take care of himself, and in those days they didn't know as much as they know now. And but fifty is young, and so you know I think sometimes and I'm sure you can you can uh, relate to this too. If your dad died young, as you say, forty nine. You know he never. I'm sorry. At forty nine. Well, he. I, I mean, so he never got to meet my wife. He never got to meet his grandchildren. Any of that. I mean, that's a right. lot to miss in life. And and it's interesting that that you talk about um, you know this this letter you know being the um, the uh, like a, having a second chance at the last things Dad said to me. <laughs> and it's, That's right. And That's right. It and, was, yeah. You know, it was. Um, I think uh, Alan Sherman, who is is best known for the song "Hello Mudda, Hello Fada," wrote a couple. Oh of, God, yes. He wrote yes. he wrote a couple of books, and in one of them, I can't remember if his autobiography or the uh, the one about the the sexual revolution, but. He said, of all the people you will know in your life, you will know your parents least of all. Wow, and that's good. It, it is, and, and it's, it's had me ponder um, a lot, and, and I can only imagine the character in this book, given that fact, couldn't pass up an opportunity to perhaps get to know his father better. Yeah, that's that's... That's the whole thing, because that's what we want. It is always a mystery to us, you know. Why did he say this, or why did he treat me that way, or what have you? And in this book, and again, I, I assure your, your listeners, we're not ruining the plot, because everything flows from, from these opening events, but uh, which, you know, which are laid out as, as you know, we call them the trade, the inciting event, or the inciting incident was him receiving this letter. But the point was that his mom... I knew this box of papers existed, and she did not necessarily know about the particular letter, but she kept these papers from her son because her son was this, you know, like very work-a-day guy. He was like a uh, advertising exec trying to build a career, and she wanted to keep him away from the life that his father had chosen. And the father, obviously, in this book, dies young also. And so, yes, it's sort of like... Now you now he's talking to you again, and he's drawing you into this. And do you just say, "Well, that was a nice idea, and maybe there is some money someplace, but I'm just going to let it go"? It was it was just an irresistible impulse for this young man, and it helped him become a man. It helps him in the course of the story, and I hope readers see that that he develops as a person because he takes on these risks and this this journey and this search. So yeah. Alan Sherman was a very funny man, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he was. Um, he certainly was. And the the character uh, Blackie, you describe him as, uh, and that's uh, 
the character's father, uh, John right. Rinaldi, right. Uh, a.k.a. Blackie, lived on the edges of organized crime. That that phrase really stuck with me because, I, you know, I played, I, I don't know if you know this or not, uh, Jeffrey, but I, I played music for a long time as, as a yes. career. And I spent a lot of time in nightclubs and met a lot of guys who lived <laughs> on the edges of organized crime. And the guy yeah, just came... Know. The guy just came to life for me because of that phrase. I knew exactly who this guy was. Yeah, that's good. Thank you, because that's exactly right. He, so this is not, he was not an assassin. He was not, you know, some sort of murder or something. But he was the kind of guy that got involved running numbers or doing some bookmaking back in the day when bookmaking was illegal and didn't have all these offshore accounts online and that sort of thing. I mean. So he was always on the fringes, and what I found, having known some of those people myself in my day, I will tell you, that they always were looking for that brass ring. You know, they were looking and saying, boy, if I could make that one score, and there's a great line from the show Guys and Dolls, which, you know, I think is a fun show. <laughs> it and is a fun show. The one song, yeah, that's yeah, I mean, you know, and when they're talking about trying to put together this, um, this dice game, this floating dice game, and the line is, if we only had a lousy little grand, we could be a millionaire. And that's, <laughs> that was the mentality, you know, like if I could just, you know, if I could just get a few bucks and we could put this game together, I'll be on the map, you know. And those people never get there. They never get there because the powerful people with the real money and, and the, real, the real juice, you know, they're not letting them get there. They use them. And that's who Blackie was. And yet this one dream, this one idea that he had, turned out to be something and this you know and as, as readers will see in the resolution of the book it's it's meaningful on a lot of different levels and i have to ask you because this sounds like a very noble quest um how and why the title fool's errand well the, the, I, you know that's hard it, it just came to me sort of like it fit because because and again, I don't want to give up too much, but, you know, in the book, he, he, he talks to friends before he, he embarks on this. And many people in the book tell him, uh, you know, you don't want to be getting involved in this. You really don't want to be getting involved in this. You know, this is, as I say, a fool's errand. And yet he knows in his heart he's got to go do this. I mean, it was his dad. And as you said, he wants to unravel some of the mystery of who his father was. And so he has no choice but to do it. But others are saying to him, you know, just leave this alone. You know who your father was and so on and so forth, particularly his mother, by the way. And, um, and so that's kind of like where this young guy becomes his own man, whereas before he was a little bit, I don't want to say wussy, but he wasn't exactly a strong character, but he develops character along the way. And I think, as we all know, that adversity... You know, that's what changes us. That's what molds us. Hey, Jeffrey, and, I, know, have to, I have to jump in here. I have to take a short break, but I hope you'll stick around so we can talk some more I about sure this. Thanks. All right. My guest is uh, author Jeffrey Stevens. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break, but we will be right back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle bell swing and jingle bell ring. Snowing and blowing up bushes of fun. Now the jingle hop has begun. Jingle, jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle bell chime and jingle bell time. Dancing and prancing in jingle bell square. In the frosty, frosty air. What a bright time, it's the right time to ride the night away. Jingle bells, jingle bells, to go gliding in a one-horse sleigh. Giddy up, jingle horse, pick up your feet. Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
Alicia, Elena, Gabriella, Erica. And the Tom Sumner Program. Christmas 2020 may be very different than holidays of old. Christmas Eve on the Tom Sumner Program can bring back some treasured memories with an encore of our Thanksgiving 2020 show featuring all holiday music. And our Christmas music is better than everybody else's because it's local. Let the Tom Sumner Program be your Christmas Eve soundtrack streaming from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com, repeating online all day and night. Simulcast on WFOV 92.1. FM in Flint at 9 a.m. and p.m. Happy Holidays from the Tom Sumner Program. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, We're going to continue our conversation about the relationship between fathers and sons as uh, inspired by the plot of uh, Jeffrey Stevens' newest book, Fool's Errand. And uh, Jeffrey joins me by phone. Jeffrey, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sure, thank you. Um, We were talking about uh, fathers and sons and how... uh, sons want to want to please their fathers and and how in this particular story um a uh, a letter um comes to this young man uh, 6 years after his dad has passed away and his dad as uh, you described him lived on the edges of organized crime and that that's that's such a fascinating character study because there are so many people like that some people would call them wannabes but that's not exactly it. It's it's like the reason that they've never been successful is there's a line they won't cross. That's very interesting. Uh, yeah, I think there's a dichotomy there. I think wannabes, by the way, is the perfect word. And they want to be, but they aren't willing to take that step, as you say. You know, and, and you said, you know, you lived the life where you were in these nightclubs a lot and met these people. And that must have been so much fun. I mean, it is a fascinating bunch of, of people. But some of them are just truly evil, and the line usually involves violence and, or, or really taking advantage of people. I mean, it's one thing to run numbers or to make book on, on a football game because people have a fighting chance to win. You know, they risk their money, they take their chances, as they say. But then there are scams, they take, they take advantage of older people, they, you know, they, they engage in violent activities or, or other things such as narcotics, prostitution, whatever. That's a whole different thing, and you're right. That's the line that a lot of these people don't cross, so they never get to be what they think they want to be because they have some measure of innate morality that they're not willing to, to give up, which I think is a good thing, and I think that kind of makes them endearing, and I think Blackie in this book is one of those people. Yeah, and Blackie, of course, is uh, John Rinaldi, uh, the father. What, what is the son's name? Okay, so this is very interesting, and and I, I don't want to, I don't want your listeners <laughs> to think there's something wrong with me. the The son's name is actually Jack, but it's never said in the book, and because he narrates the book, 
So he never says, I'm Jack. He just tells the story from beginning to end. Ah. And at some point, my editor, who, who I've worked with on other books, and he's a great editor, by the way, he's, he's, up, he's up by you guys in Michigan by the name of Ryan Steck, brilliant guy, does a lot of major, major authors. I don't consider myself a major author, but he does a lot of major suspense guys like Brad Meltzer, and, and he's, he worked with, uh, with um, the late Vince Flynn on the Mitch Rapp series and, and so forth. And after he read the book, the second time, he said to me, you know, something just occurred to me. You never say the character's name. And I said, yeah, because I, I wanted him to be every man. I wanted him to be any guy who, you know, who ever had any issue with his father. I wanted him to be that person. And so I don't really do a lot about describing him. I do a little bit of physical description, but there's not a lot of physical description about him. And his name is never stated. Now, Blackie... I describe in some detail in terms of what he looks like, who he was, his name, his nickname, his background, and so forth. But I was hoping that the narrator was more like a vessel for people to read into it and say, yeah, I, I get that. You know, I, I could see myself in there. So well, it's an unusual it, thing. It's not, it's, I'm not the first writer to have done that, and I didn't do it on purpose. But I, you know, I got to the end of the book, and I said, gee, no one ever says it. And there was one scene where he speaks on the phone with his sister before he embarks on this journey that I'm telling you about, what the book is, you know, centers around. And at, at some point, um, she says, you know, Jack, and something like that. And somehow along the way it got edited out, and so that was the only reference to his name. So I know that's a little odd, but trust me, it, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't create any problem in reading the book because it's all about these other interesting characters that he meets along the way. Well, and and in a way, the book Blackie is is really kind of the main character of the book because it's it's his story that's being completed. Yes, it is. It's his influence. I, I, if I may, I, I'll tell you a story about about how this developed because this book was a much longer book because there were a lot of flashbacks of. Um, of different scenes between Blackie and his son and, and the son and his family and so forth. And I, I work with, uh, I, I shouldn't say I work with, I have a friend of mine who's a writer. He's a really good writer by the name of Chris Beakey out of Washington, D.C. And I asked him to read the book and he absolutely loved it. But he said to me, I have something I have to tell you. So let's talk on the phone. So cause we do a lot of emails as people do nowadays. And so he got on the phone. He said, I don't know how to say this to you because I don't want you to be upset but I think we need to cut a number of these scenes. And he said, here's my problem. I love the scenes, but they're slowing the action. And for a reader, they want to know, what, you know what's going on with this mystery, what's going on with this money. And you can't keep stopping them. You can't keep stopping them. And so I went back and did some surgery on this book, and it's probably 20,000 plus words shorter than it originally was. <laughs> but the pacing, he was so right. The pacing is so much better. It became a page-turner, and then there's this one final scene towards the end of the book where the narrator is describing some event that occurred with his father years before. And Chris said to me, I said, well, what about this? He said, Chris said, that's the one scene that if you take it out, I'll kill you, because it's such a great <laughs> scene. The, readers, the reader has to have that scene because that closes the circle on what the relationship was between the father and the son. And I'm telling you, and I'm not, I don't cry easily, 
But when I reread the book after, you know, being away from it for a while, it was just about to be published, and they said, you've got to read it one more time. I read that scene and actually got tears in my eyes because it was such a touching scene between the father and the son and who they were together and what they meant to each other. And I hope readers take away from the book that that's at the heart of this thing, that, you know, daughters and fathers and, as I say, fathers and sons, whatever, that when it comes to our parents, there's a relationship that's completely irreplaceable and almost entirely unique in, on the planet. I mean, you know, as you know, most, most animals in the kingdom, insects, whatever, you know, they give birth and then they walk away and the kid is on their own. They're, you know, I, I was just at a farm with, with some goats and, you know, they give birth and, like, by that afternoon, the baby goat is walking around. But when it comes to human beings, as we all know, if you leave a child unattended, the child will die. Uh, an infant cannot fend for himself in any way, and that bond between the parents is that strong and remains that strong throughout life, which, again, is some of the point of the book. I'm not trying to get on a, on a pulpit. I mean, this is an entertainment-type book. I mean, it's fun, but that is what's behind it. Yeah, um, the late uh, Robin Williams, um, in ha describing having recently become a parent, said that parenting was like uh, being a tour guide to life. <laughs> exactly, except you don't get an instruction manual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I tell you, I have two sons, and I, I have made my mistakes, and, and uh, overall I think I did an okay job, and I love my sons, and I believe they love me. But, you know, it's not easy, and there are moments when you, you come up to these these dilemmas where, you know, there's no one there to you say. And that's, again, that's what I think about my own father. Say, well, what would he have advised me at this point? You know, because you're not sure exactly what you should do because there's no right or wrong. It's just you do, you do the best you can, and, and that's what it's about. Well, yeah, it's the quintessential fork in the road. Yes, it is. Um, what... I'm all, you know, I'm always curious about the creative process. What prompted this story for you? Was there something in your life, uh, a, a story you read in a paper? What was it that clicked the light bulb and said, hey, this is a book? Okay, well, that's another great question, and it was twofold. One is that the, I came up with the ending, which I'm not going to talk about at all, because I, I want the readers to enjoy it, um, and I thought, wouldn't that, that's such a cool idea, you know, and generally speaking, and, you know, whenever I talk to other writers, you know, it seems strange, but writing is about figuring out your ending first. It's like taking a journey, you need to know where you're going to wind up. You know, if you and I, if I got together with you and Flint and said, we said, let's drive to, I don't know, Houston, Texas, right? Yeah. We know we're going to Houston, Texas. There are, there are many different ways we can get there. We could go in a circular route. We could go all over the country and get there. We could go in a straight line, basically. But we know where we're going, and that's the key to a book. And I came up with this idea, and I said, that would really be fascinating. And then the other thing was, I think when I first had the germ of this idea, I was at a point, like you and I have been discussing, where I really wish my father was still around. And I thought, boy, I wonder, you know, if he could talk to me now. And that sort of sprung the idea of, well, what if I found something that he had written that I never noticed before in his box? And, you know, he served in World War II, which, by the way, becomes part of the story. 
Um, and, you know, what if I found something in there, a letter that I had never seen before, something like that. And so I created this, you know, this device, this inciting incident where there is actually a letter that was written to the son specifically, only to be opened in the event of his death. And, of course, the mother never let him see it for six years. And so that's how, and then I said, well, I know where I'm starting and I know where I'm going. And what's the story going to look like? And that's pretty much how I do most of my novels. I, you know, and now, as you, as you were kind enough to mention, I did a spy series that's still, you know, going. I have four of them so far with Jordan Sandor as the CIA agent. So with those, I already know who my main character is. We know basically what, you know, the conventions of a spy thriller are, which is there's going to be some sort of danger both to him and to our country, and he's going to have to fight the villains. And so, you know, you pretty much could fill in some blanks, and then what you need to do is you need to be creative and make them a little bit different than other guys' books or other women's books, you know, so that they, they drive the action. Uh, this, I wanted romance in there, and there is. In Fool's Errand, there's, you know, I think a lovely romance between our, our, our narrator and this woman he meets along the way, and I think that's fun. And so you just kind of fill in the, those, those pieces to it. And uh, I, I suppose this book will be a one-off. I don't, I don't think there's going to be a sequel to it, whereas the Jordan Sanders series is four books, and Crimes and Passion that you mentioned earlier um, I'm just putting the finishing touches on the next book in that series, which is, you know, sort of like a murder mystery style series um, and with with the same character, same main character. So so that makes it easier for me because it's like coming back and visiting a friend and saying, yeah, I know who he is. And now let's just put him into some kind of a plot that makes sense and is interesting to a reader. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting, uh, Jeffrey, because... Most of your books, uh, you know, the, the spy novels and uh, the mysteries um, revolve around, you know, a good guy, Jordan Sandor or Lieutenant Robbie White. And it, it's it's almost as if, uh, you know, may, maybe you had the desire to write a story that revolved around a bad guy or at least a wannabe bad guy. Right. right. Well, that's true, yes. Maybe Black there's a line you wouldn't father. cross. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you put it that way. And it's sort of, I'm hoping that it's, it's the father, Blackie, who's not a good guy, but that in the end, what he's done results in some good. And you'll see at the end of the book how that, how that plays out, whether intentional or otherwise. There are several important byproducts of what he's left behind in terms of how his son develops into a man and what happens with this treasure that he's seeking and, and all the rest of that. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, but that's a very good point because central to this book is black. I mean, he's the one who, made, who makes the actions swirl around, right? Cause he's the guy. He wrote the letter, he did these deeds and so, and so forth. And the various people that the main character, the narrator has to deal with along the way, they have various various opinions about Blackie. You know, some of them good, and some of them not so good. <laughs> this is a fun story, Jeffrey, because it's it's uh, part treasure hunt and part coming of age. Um, you know, I, I I'm tempted to ask uh, how much of it is um, the treasure hunt, Jack trying to you know find 
what this this um, cache of uh, cash, and yep. um, but at the same time, in a way, he's doing it to get to know his father better. Right. How much right. of it is search and how much of it is discovery? I think I think it's very much both. With the unintended side effect, and of course he never he never clocks for the unintended side effect that it also causes him to do some growing up that he might not have otherwise done, and facing certain challenges and certain dangers in ways that maybe he didn't think he could, and so forth. So yeah, I think it, I think it's it's both of those things very importantly. It's yeah, I, I, it's a very good analysis, and I think that it's fun because. You do have the romance. You do have the excitement. There, there are scenes in it, you know, that you know, where there's there's action throughout. And as I say, because of some of the cutting we did, it, the pacing is terrific. I think. I, I mean, I, re- I hope that readers would just find that it takes them from one chapter to the next because they really want to find out what what happened and and how that plays out. And and so I think it's rich in characters because um, these are real people, people that we could say, oh, yeah, I know somebody like that, uh, of the various characters that appear. And so, yes, and, and the treasure hunt itself is just a fun thing. I mean, that's a fun device. Well, everybody loves a treasure hunt. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're, and, they're irresistible. And, and this one, how it plays out, uh, well, you know, hopefully people read it and, and they'll see. I mean, I think... And one thing that was important to me, too, is that this was a book that I hope, and I still hope, appeals to women as much as to men. I mean, I recognize, and I don't want to sound sexist because I'm not really that way, but I realize that my Jordan Sandor series is geared more towards men than to women. I mean, Jordan Sandor has a girlfriend who reappears in the stories, but it's not much of a romance. I mean, it, it's really a story. It's an action story about CIA and, and you know, killing the Arabs and, you know, the Al-Qaeda and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, women tend, in my experience, they like murder mysteries, they like character studies, and so forth. So even though this is not a mother-daughter story, it's a father-son story, I still think women can relate to it because there's a romance in there and there's a certain poignancy and it really is goes to the heart of characters, and I think women are better readers when it comes to that. Guys, you know, want to turn the page when you know when you know when the gun is pointed at somebody, and you know we tend to read those sorts of books more, and whereas women have a broader perspective uh, on those things. And I think that in this book, it, I think it appeals to women as well as for men. At least you know that's our initial the initial reaction we're getting. It, by the way, it gets released today. So this is kind of exciting for me because this interview is happening on the day that it's being released. Excellent. And, of course, it'll be available where all fine books are sold. Um, you can go to your usual uh, usual suspects for uh, for tracking it down. Um, yeah, if, if people... If, by the way, I, I, I truly, truly support independent bookstores. You know, this economy is such a mess anyway with the pandemic, but they were having trouble even before this because, let's face it, between Barnes & Noble and and uh, Amazon, you know, independent bookstores are a dying breed. So if you can find a local bookstore, I'm not going to suggest that they're going to have it today, but, you know, they could order it and get it quickly. And if not, it is available on Amazon, and you can order it in Barnes & Noble as well. 
But, you know, I, I really encourage people to support local bookstores like all small businesses. You know, everybody's hurting now. A lot of my friends are hurting. I mean, uh, you know, other things that I do are not going so well because of this pandemic. And, you know, now, with, I mean, I'm in the Northeast, and so with the restaurants closing, uh, because you can't eat outside anymore. I mean, so for the summer, we suffered through, and, you know, it was okay. But now, you, you know, you can't eat outside when it's 40 degrees. I mean, they put out heaters, but, you know, your spaghetti is going to be ice cold no matter how warm you are, no matter how bundled up you are. And so it's really not a good thing. So anyway, local, local businesses need our help. That's true. That's true. And I'm glad you said that. The, um, I, I want to make sure we get this in. We've just got a couple of minutes left. Unless you want to stick around for another segment, I'd be happy to. Whatever you like. Um, but I do want to mention, uh, uh, albeit parenthetically, that uh, Jeffrey does have a website. It's Jeffrey Stevens. That's the PH kind. Uh, JeffreyStevens.com. And uh, Jeffrey, because of the cuts in this book, it, it makes me curious about how the the process of writing went for this book it almost sounds like once you started it it kind of wrote itself it, you just started the narration and it kept going there's a there's a lot of that and when it comes to the cuts i think it was ernest Hemingway who said writing is all about killing our darlings because we write these scenes there's there's one scene i won't bore you with the details but there's one very very emotional scene where the narrator's mother is on the brink of death, and she survives, but she's, you know, she's very sick, and it's, it's the father, the son, the mother, and all this kind of stuff, and as I say, this fellow Chris Beakey, who I cannot thank enough, said, Jeff, I love the scene, I cried when I read it, and I get rid of it because it doesn't belong in this book. <laughs> 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 so maybe it'll, maybe it'll show up in another one, time. I don't know, but, but I, you know, he, I said, you're right, you know, it's like a couple thousand words that just, people are going to say, and listen, this is all very touching, but I want to know what happened to the money. So, <laughs> so you got to stay with the reader. Uh, well, you could uh, you could put them together in a collection of short stories, Blackie's true. Tales or something. Blackie's Tales, yeah, because I have a few of those left that got cut <laughs> on the cutting room floor. They're on the cutting room floor. They say in the movie biz. Um, now, and I I think we talked about this when we were talking about the. Uh, the Sandor series, the Jordan Sandor series, um, about whether or not you'd like to see it on the big screen. Would this one make a good movie? Oh, I think so. And I'm not saying that to sell it, but I'm just saying that this would be a fun thing because it's just so listeners know. It's it's also it's got a, it's got a great scope. I mean, it starts in New York City, but then it goes to Las Vegas, and then it winds up in the south of France. So, you know, you've got some great locales and you've got some great action in it. This is not, this is not cerebral. This is not Proust sitting there eating Madeleines. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is, a, this is a guy moving, moving through the underworld, you know, up in, uh, you know, up in the Italian sections of the Bronx in New York and then, uh, you know, down in the Riviera, uh, you know, in Monte Carlo you know, chasing gotcha. down this money. So, so yeah, it, it's very cinematic. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Jeffrey Hi, Stevens straight ahead. Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. We will. 
wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings to you wherever you are. Good tidings for Christmas and a Happy New Year. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner This is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Water running under your bridge later. 
from Haley, Alex, Alexis, help! And the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We're talking with uh, author Jeffrey Stevens about his new book, uh, which is called Fool's Errand. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks for sticking around. Welcome back. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, we've been having a great conversation. I was actually uh, kidding you sort of at the beginning of the interview, having uh, two book releases fairly close together as if you were knocking these things out in a matter of weeks. But how, <laughs> how long does it take uh, to do a book like Fool's Errand? Uh, really, it takes me a year. I, I mean, it's, it's all in. I mean, by the time I, I do the first draft, I do a couple of rewrites, and then I get it to an editor. I mean, it really is a year-long project for me. I, I know other writers can write faster and so forth, but uh, that's, what, that's what it takes. And uh, I enjoy the process, and I encourage anybody who wants to write to, uh, to uh, uh, what's the word, to heed the advice of the writer George Higgins, who wrote, among other things, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which became a movie with Robert Mitchum, but he wrote a great book on writing. It's just a very slim volume. But in the end, he said, in, in the final analysis, writers write. And so when people ask me, I say, look, don't talk about your story. Don't tell people your story. Sit down and write it. And you're going to throw away at least 50% of what you write. It doesn't matter. If you love the process, you'll write something good. Just keep at it. Keep rewriting. Keep editing. That's what you have to do. It doesn't, you know, this book, Fool's Aaron, and you pointed to it earlier, and you're right on the money. This was the book that wrote itself more than any other book I ever did. This sort of thing. Once I got going, I just loved it, and I enjoyed it, and I wrote it. And again, I wrote too much of it. As I say, 20 or, 20 or 30,000 words of it are, are gone from the final copy, but I enjoyed the whole thing. But it's, you know, writing is it's, it's tough. It's a lonely business. But if you love it, you know, I love to tell stories. As you can tell, I like to talk. <laughs> um, so this just kind of natural for me. You know, you, you talk about the 20,000 words that, that got cut, and, and it's so interesting because uh, I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, author Deb, uh, Debbie Maycumber, but she has tons of titles. Um, and they're a little fluffy probably for you or, or, or me, but... Um, I had her on the show, and I was asking her who had written more books, her or Stephen King. And, and she said, well, I think I have more titles, but I think Stephen's written more words. And I thought, who does the math on this? <laughs> you know? Well, no, it's true. it's true. It doesn't become a numbers game. I mean, Stephen King... Uh, the, he's written some really brilliant books. I don't love everything he writes. I'm not a hard guy per se. Yeah. But I read The Stand, and the full unabridged version of The Stand is like, what is it, 1,200 pages or something, and I loved every minute of it. And yet he wrote narrower, slimmer volumes like uh, Misery, which is also a great book. I know, you know, I was, I was concerned because, you know, people, you know, they want to get their money's worth and so forth. But somebody said to me, here's what you have to keep in mind. The Great Gatsby, which is considered one of the great American novels of the 20th century, was only 50,000 words. Catcher in the Rye was only 75,000 words. So not everything is war and peace. You know, not everything is, is 1,000 pages. 
And if you, I mean, the old man in the sea was 40,000 words. So, you know, there are some great books out there that are long and there's some great books that are short. You should just, you know, when they ask how long should a book be long enough for you to tell your story, that's it. And there are nowadays, because people have limited time and therefore limited attention and so forth, but there are certain kind of unwritten rules, like most mysteries are between 70 and 90,000 words. If you get over 100,000 words, they want to know why. But King, he just, he writes what he wants to write. (laughs) 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 You know, and and he gets to do it, and he gets to do it well. Well, I don't... If he wants to write... I don't remember what the word count is, but the Gettysburg Address only took four minutes. That's right. There you go. That's a a brilliant observation. I mean, that's exactly right. What you know, if you could say it, you know, uh, there's. uh, I I never went to Harvard Business School, but I met people who did, and they said that um, you know they're they're saying there less is more, and I think one of the exercises you have to do at the end. I don't know if it's apocryphal or if it's still in, in play. You have to create a business plan on one page. So they say, you know, if it's going to take you more than that, then you're full of baloney and, you know, <laughs> move on. But so like you say, the Gettysburg Address. I mean, gosh, you go to the Lincoln Memorial and you read that thing and you say, wow, it's really something. And it's just, just a few words, but it says it all. And, you know, it, it chokes you up because it's America. And, and it's, you know, it was that terse and that well written. So if you write well, you don't need too many words. If you start overwriting, people are going to figure it out. You know, right, readers today, by the way, I just want to say this. Readers today are so much smarter than, it, than in bygone eras because we're so suffused with information. I mean, we're bombarded with information all the time in this electronic age. And so you can't fool people. I wrote, I, I, I may have told you the story about the Jordan Sandor series, but there was one scene in the very first Jordan Sandor where Sandor confronts these guys on the, on the shoreline of Portofino, Italy. And there's a gunfight that ensues. And I had a guy, a very elderly, wonderful man, who was retired military and police, and he used to do much fact-checking. And, and he wrote me and he said, no good. And I said, what do you mean no good? He said, he fired eight shots. There were only seven shots in that automatic. <laughs> I mean, who would know that? Right. I said, I said, oh, for God's sake, he said, no, 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 no. You're going to get letters from readers who are going to say, there's one in the chamber and six in the magazine, and you had him fire eight shots. And so I had to rewrite the scene so that he wouldn't have to reload in the, ma- in the middle of a gunfight. I had to, had to cut out one of the shots. I mean, that's how, but he said, that's how smart readers are today. And, and so, you know, I remember as a kid, when you, you watch these westerns, and John Wayne would have, a, would have like a six-shooter, and fire off 40 shots without ever stopping to reload. <laughs> I'm, still trying to, I'm still trying to count the number of shots at the beginning of the uh, old TV show, The, uh, the Rifleman. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's like 40, 40, 40 rounds in, in a rifle that only held eight. I mean, so anyway, you can't fool, you can't fool the public much anymore, I tell you what. It, it, you know, readers... Uh, they don't. They do not want you to take anything for granted. They don't want you know phony descriptions because they they'll say like, wait a minute, I was there, and that's not how that street looks. <laughs> I mean, really, truly. Well, Jeffrey, um, we've really got to bring it to a close. But thanks so much for spending this hour with me. It was fun. Oh, it's a it's a pleasure. You are delightful. Thank you so much for your generosity. 
I hope people buy lots of copies of Fool's Errand for Christmas presents. But <laughs> whether you do or not, everybody have a wonderful Christmas. Stay safe. That's the thing here. Just stay safe. And and Jeffrey, I hope you'll come back and uh, and uh, talk with me again in a few weeks when the next book is out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll certainly come back and talk with you. I'll let you know about another book. All Thank right. You, Take care, Stephen. You too. Uh, that was Jeffrey Stevens. He uh, is the author of a new book that's called um, Fool's Errand. And uh, we've got lots more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Oh, I did want to mention once again, you can find out more about Jeffrey Stevens at jeffreystevens.com about his work, past, present, and future. More of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. is frightful but the fire is so delightful says we've no place to go let it snow let it snow let it snow oh it doesn't show signs of stopping but hey i brought some corn for popping the lights are turned way down low let it snow let it snow let it snow when we finally kiss goodnight how I hate going out in the storm But if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm The fire is slowly dying My dear, we're still goodbying But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow when we finally kiss goodnight I will hear going out in the storm but if you really hold me tight all the way home I'll be warm All the fire is slowly dying No matter how we're still goodbye But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow program don't you know go on go on get out of here it's 